You're listening to Design Tomorrow. What the? Normally, I don't pick up hitchhikers, but take a look at this. How's it going? Hello, I am Hitchbot. Jump in. You will have to pick me up. All right, I'll come get you. Watch your head. Sometimes bad things happen to good robots. Well, that was the conclusion of the research team that created a simple little robot named Hitchbot. They made Hitch to explore the world and observe and learn about people which it did safely for the better part of two years. It had already made its way across Canada, through Germany, and the Netherlands, when it finally landed in the United States in the summer of 2015. Hitch lasted two weeks before being destroyed near Philadelphia. Now, as far as robots go, Hitchbot wasn't much. The computer stuffed inside of its plastic bucket body was able to keep track of its location take pictures, respond to spoken commands, and kind of emote via a very simple LED screen for a face. But its decorative tube arms and legs were incapable of movement or even supporting its own weight, and that's where Hitch got its name from. It had to be picked up and carried by other humans, hitching rides from one place to another. Not to be overly pessimistic about our collective goodwill, but I'll be honest... I'm amazed Hitch got as far as it did. And yet, I do still wonder, why was Hitch destroyed? When you start talking about robots today, it doesn't take long before you're really talking about jobs. Robots were once a symbol of the future, of progress toward a time in which there'd be less we had to do, a time of leisure, But now, now that our technology has caught up with our futuristic dreams, robots are capable of doing much more than just our daily domestic labor. Robots are taking over factories. They're driving cars, trucks, and buses. They're running warehouses and organizing deliveries. They're performing surgery. They're organizing the world's information and making decisions with it that we can't even understand. And perhaps more surprisingly, They're doing all of this in plain sight. Most people see the robots coming. And some people have already lost a job because someone else decided that a robot could do it better. So I suppose it's no surprise that there might be some ill will toward robots, enough to put even a harmless and cute one like Hitch at risk. Needless to say, of course, Hitch wasn't ever going to take anyone's job. And that's because only Hitch could do what Hitch was designed to do. To record the experience of a robot roaming a human's world. I wonder if Hitch got it right. Aggression is a product of fear. And as benign as Hitch was, the average human does have plenty to fear in the average robot. And so today I want to think about robots. Not just about what they are, but about what they should do and shouldn't do. 
and about what they say about us. What is it about robots that compels us to create them? And what does it say about a culture that makes these machine surrogates despite not having reached a consensus about why to make them in the first place? You're listening to Design Tomorrow. I'm Chris Butler. Stay tuned. Design Tomorrow is a podcast about design, technology, and being human, which, admittedly, is a lot to be about. But in all things, we hope to grow in our awareness that what we do and think today can create a better tomorrow. You can follow the show on Twitter at Design Tomorrow. Just leave all the vowels out. That's at D-S-G-N-T-M-R-R-W. You can also visit the show's website at designtomorrow.co. And if you want to get in touch directly, you can email me at chris at designtomorrow.co. I'd love to hear from you. And now, let's get back to the show. When it comes to talking about robots, it helps to make sure we're all talking about the same thing. What is a robot, anyway? Is it a machine capable of carrying out a complex series of actions automatically, especially one programmable by a computer? Or is it simply a mechanical or virtual artificial agent? These two definitions are likely the two most within reach of anyone asking. You can find them on Google and Wikipedia. But they also represent two ends of a very wide spectrum of thought about robots. One that traces the evolution of the popular understanding of a robot's purpose and function from something very mechanical and simplistic to something. Well, let's just say for now, something else. In the mid-20th century, the autonomous, complex machine, the robot as thought of by Isaac Asimov, for instance, was the height of our expectations for the future. But today, that simpler definition of a machine capable of carrying out a complex series of actions automatically, well, that applies to so many things in common use that the word robot just doesn't seem right anymore. Think about it. Would you call your car a robot? How about your phone? I doubt you would, and yet both are machines capable of carrying out a series of actions automatically. No, the defining characteristic of the robot has kept pace with the evolving complexity of technology. Today, agency is that thing that differentiates the robot from the everyday machine. There are three basic types, the wills, the wants, and the cans. A robot is an artificial agent. It's a machine that acts on behalf of a human, doing what a human can do, as well as what a human cannot do, or what a human will not do. I'm afraid I can't do that. And that's where it gets interesting. Or frightening. Or just much more complicated. It depends on the robot. And probably more importantly, it depends on what you want that robot to do. A robot, in theory, 
would be a better worker than a human, impervious to all the things that make you and I unreliably productive. Fatigue and boredom, obviously, but also arrogance, laziness, petulance, hubris, avarice, deception, and a whole host of other gifts of the ego. Again, in theory, one could debate the possibility of those things emerging with consciousness from an artificial intelligence, depending, of course, upon what one means by artificial intelligence and what one means by consciousness. But I'm going to leave all of that alone because debating the nature of intelligence and consciousness is too much for this show. For now, let's just think about robots that are complex enough to pass the Turing test, which, for the unfamiliar, evaluates a machine's ability to display intelligence indistinguishable from that of a human. Robots don't feel fear. Contrary to popular belief, the test does not judge whether a machine has become conscious. They don't feel anything. It judges whether a human can tell the difference between a machine and another human. They don't get hungry. It should be pointed out that Turing himself doubted whether consciousness, machine or human, could ever be truly proven by a test. He began with a single question. Can machines think? Only to eventually narrow the scope of his inquiry to, are there imaginable digital computers which would do well in the imitation game? I do. I have even had dreams. So when I say robot, I still mean a machine that, however sophisticated, is the result of human programming and has a very real set of limitations, despite any appearance to the contrary. As in, not likely to rise up and rebel against its enslavement by humans but quite likely to mess up all kinds of things because humans made it, and humans make mistakes. It's the reliability of humans that makes the agency of robots so interesting. So back to our question. What are robots good at? Well, repetition comes to mind first. Robots are excellent at performing repetitive tasks without the degradation of fine motor control that makes anything you and I do over and over and over again for too long follow a predictably parabolic pattern of ascendancy and decline. Human muscle memory is both a feature and a bug. On the other hand, the more we do a thing with our body over and over again, the more control we tend to have in how we do it. Ask any drummer and they'll tell you that double beat is the most boring and most essential exercise a drummer can do to improve their control and accuracy. But when it comes to building strength over time, repetition is not your friend. Ask any weightlifter and they'll tell you that the secret to strength gains is novelty. The body gets the most out of an exercise done in a variety of ways. Which is why weightlifters looking to increase their pectoral strength won't just do barbell presses on a flat bench over and over again. They'll also do push-ups or use dumbbells and machines, all in many different configurations, in order to keep the muscle in a state of growth. Otherwise, the body eventually normalizes as it grows accustomed to repetitive movements. As an example, here's a robot playing the drums. 
as artless and boring as this robot is, there's no question that it could play this very simple beat more accurately for longer than a human could. It won't learn to get any better unless a person programs it to, but it also won't get bored. Ever. Now, a drumming robot is obviously just a novelty. Someone thought it would be cool to make a robot that could play the drums. But we all agree that no one needs a robot that can play the drums. But there are plenty of necessary robots in the world already doing repetitive work. For example, robots that make springs. No human can make as perfect a spring as quickly over and over again as a machine can. And God knows we need our springs. I'm actually not kidding. Once you start to look for springs, you'll realize they're everywhere. Now, robots are great spring makers because they're great at physical tasks that must be done the same way over and over again. And with repetition comes many other conditions that aren't human friendly. Speed for one. Repetition and speed tend to lead to injury in humans, even death. Strength is another. Even the strongest weightlifter is no match for a machine. That's why robots do so many industrial tasks, like assembly, pressing, sawing, welding, and shredding. Now, is it better that robots do these things? It probably is. Robots can make more things better and faster than we can, without as much collateral damage. Now, this is all very obvious, but it's worth thinking about carefully because many people used to do things that robots do now, but there is no reward for the worker who abdicates to industrial progress. That worker often cannot find something else to do. And so again, I wonder, what sort of person destroyed Hitchbot? I can't help but imagine torn pink slips scattered amongst Hitch's remains. Job-stealing robots are not just a blue-collar problem. The industrial robot is, by its nature, much more akin to the mid-century machine than it is the contemporary artificial agent. And to be fair, plenty of industrial robots do tasks that humans never did, never could do. So whatever agency we'd apply to them is much more a matter of extension than, say, emulation. But the modern robot is doing things that are much more human in their nature. Pick up the phone and try to talk to someone about your bank account, your insurance, your electric bill, your internet service, your computer, your music and video streaming subscriptions, and on and on and on. And you'll almost certainly have to talk to a robot multiple times before you can talk to a single human being. In fact, most companies that put robots on the front line would prefer that their customers never talk to a human. The robot never veers from the script, never loses its temper, never makes a mistake, never takes a break. One robot for thousands of humans. This is obviously good for the business, but not good for the human. And now that I think about it, maybe a former customer service representative killed Hitchbot, or maybe it was a frustrated customer who had just hung up on a cold, inflexible, unempathetic robot. You know, it's starting to seem like Hitchbot's enemies could have easily outnumbered its friends. 
But here's the real problem. Ask anyone what they want to be when they grow up, and who is going to say a person who winds springs, like hundreds of springs an hour for eight hours a day, seven days a week, or a person who gets yelled at by angry customers? Nobody. That machines are now viable surrogates for the grueling, thankless, never-ending labor on which our modern lifestyle depends makes for what might be called a de-industrial revolution. It was the invention of machines, after all, that created the Industrial Revolution, robbing many of their jobs, but propelling all of us into much more machine-mediated lives. Today, the sophistication of machines has reached a point that makes most of them invisible to us. Factories almost entirely machine-run, such that few humans need ever set foot in one. Airplanes, software piloted for more airtime than the average passenger would likely feel comfortable with. The voice on the other end of the support line, just an emanation of an unseen server cluster. Not to mention every networked device in our homes, which respond to our commands thanks to far-off data centers often populated by just a handful of humans. Today's industrial revolution hides the industry from its beneficiaries so well. We have the luxury of delegating more work than ever to machines. Out of sight, out of mind. Now this is largely a critique in hindsight. Of course, this has already happened, and I doubt there's any going back. I wonder, though, about where we go from here, about other kinds of things that robots can do, but which we will be reluctant to let them. We've got one foot in the swampy morass of self-driving cars, for instance. Will we go all the way? A couple of years ago, Uber acquired a self-driving truck startup named Auto for $700 million dollars. Not long afterward, Uber used Auto to deliver 45,000 cans of beer for Budweiser, robot-driven for 120 miles across Colorado. Meanwhile, Amazon is beginning to handle its own logistics. And if you think that means a jump in the human headcount at Amazon, you're not connecting the dots. This is the same company that wants to use drones to deliver your orders. The same company that wants their cylindrical ears in every room of your house. No. The job of delivering millions of packages every single day will eventually go to machines. It seems to me that the autonomous vehicle is going to be amongst the most controversial technological developments of our time. Not that it will be a surprise, we all see it coming, but that the reality it creates will be. The argument for autonomous vehicles is pretty simple. It's that software makes fewer mistakes than humans do. Software doesn't fall asleep at the wheel, drive while intoxicated, find speed thrilling, or take its eyes off the road. Auto driving. There we go. Away we go. <laughs> sure, accidents will happen with autonomous vehicles, but in theory, in much smaller numbers. <laughs> no hands anywhere. No hands, no feet. Now, if that's true, then it makes sense to hand the keys over. But we don't tend to make decisions like that rationally. The Ubers and the Amazons of the world will instead force our hands. They'll have to. A road with one autonomous vehicle on it creates enough of an imbalance to catalyze a policy machine that will inevitably push each of us to give up driving ourselves. See, the argument 
is already that software is safer than wetware, and most people get it, whether they agree or not. But the argument that follows that one is that software is safer with other software, meaning that though an autonomous vehicle can drive better than a human, safety will be compromised when it shares the road with human drivers. Once laws are passed that allow autonomous vehicles on the road at all, the laws and policies that follow which will make it harder and more expensive to be insured to drive, and harder and more expensive to keep your license, and harder and more expensive to own and operate your own vehicle, will come very quickly. I don't see the highways of the future driven on by robots and humans. I see it as a place where humans ride and robots drive. Autonomous driving is a tipping point. It forces the driving swath of society to go full robot, which means it forces society to go full robot. On the conceptual family tree of robotics, where we're talking about degrees of agency on behalf of humans, the self-driving car is much closer to autocorrect on your mobile keyboard than the entire robotic assembly line that produced it. It does a thing that you did for yourself, and, such as the sales pitch, that you did poorly. But no one feels stripped of their humanity when autocorrect kicks in. As infuriating as it is that my phone still forces incorrect corrections, the stakes just aren't that high. It's just a text. And even if a machine sometimes meddles in my communication, I can still talk to people face-to-face and control every word I say. Now, autonomous vehicles are like that. They make judgments for us. But the existential stakes are so much higher. There will be a transitional period, but at some point, we will go from being drivers to passengers. We won't go easily, but we will go. There will be accidents, and some people will say, see, robots are bad. And other people will say, well, there has been one robot accident this year and 100 human accidents today. There will be debates and factions and politicians and union strikes and constitutional amendments. But eventually, we'll run out of ways to slow this down. Some of us will have to find another way to get around. I'm not sure I like that future. But a different future, one in which we don't lose so much ground to machines, would require different thinking right now. The inexorable rise of the machines, the sort of headline that magazines and websites love to write, is really no such thing. We still have a choice as to what we decide to do or not do, to build or not build, to accept or not accept. The modern robot, the machine agent, is a blank slate. It will do what we cannot or will not do only if we decide we cannot or will not do it ourselves. And it seems to me that we have truly not made that decision. We are told that the robots are coming. And that when they arrive, this and that will happen. But why? Why do we have to accept that? Isaac Asimov imagined an ethics with which all robots would be programmed. Three laws which would govern the actions of robots and protect humans. But he did not imagine an ethics which would govern the actions of humans who create robots. A major misfire, if you ask me. The first of his three laws specified that a robot may not harm a human being or through inaction allow a human being to come to harm. 
But what exactly is meant by harm? What if a robot's very existence allows a human being to come to harm? What if harm is interpreted as unemployment, which leads to much more obvious harms like depression, poverty, suffering, or death? The ethics which address such a question are, and I'm sorry to kill the vibe, engineers who are listening, a prerequisite to any programming, as in totally non-negotiable. And I'm sure ethical questions are asked and whiteboarded, but by what mechanism is it ensured that they are answered? In a capitalist society, is there any room for regulation of innovation, for slowing it down, or altering its course to protect human beings from the collateral damage of technological change? Where might a line be drawn between a world-changing product that creates and distributes more than it takes and one that does the opposite? And who would judge such a thing? I don't know the answers to these questions, but as technological change accelerates, it seems we can observe enough cycles of cause and effect to conclude that someone must. We cannot be allowed to make something without fully and collectively reckoning with its consequences. Those who make robots have chosen to make robot making the thing they do. It's a thing that can be done and which will likely result in some reward for those who do it. But in making robots, which must of course do something too, they rob others of the things that they can do and in most cases must do for lack of better options. Perhaps we must begin to think of robot making as a destructive luxury. Perhaps we must ask what we stand to gain in replacing human work with robot work other than unemployed people. Certainly some wealth, but certainly not widely distributed. What right do a small number of wealthy individuals have to shape the future for the rest of us in this way? Why not design a system now which properly distributes responsibility for the future, responsibility for the safety, well-being, dignity, and earning power of every human? Behind every robot is a human. When considering the work a robot might do, that fact is essential. No human loses their job to a robot. They lose their job to the human behind the robot. Whether or not Hitchbot was the victim of a growing human angst towards robots, I don't know. It's clearly possible, but it probably doesn't matter. Hitch stood out by requiring humans to participate in its moving around the world. Well, what's in it for me? Many of them could have asked. This is my world. Some of them might have thought, it's either me or it. How silly, when Hitch was just a bucket with a face. And meanwhile, we invite millions and millions of much more powerful robots to live amongst us. And few of them have faces. The Googles, Alexas, Ceres, Cortanas, and other surveillance robots, oh, I mean digital assistants, are already in millions of homes. They've begun the diplomatic process which some people hope will end with us accepting machine agents that listen all the time, not just when we ask them to. 
They hope we will come to believe that because they answer our questions and respond to our commands and make life just a little bit more convenient for us, that they are our agents. That the best robot is one that does not look you in the eye. That the best robot is one that cannot convict you with its stare. But we should know better. Because behind every robot is a human. Well, friends, that's all for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Design Tomorrow. If you did, find the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and give it a rating and review. Before we go, even though we've gone long, I want to share a couple of things with you. The first is another podcast that I think you might like. I discovered it a few months ago when it had just gotten started and I've really enjoyed hearing it take shape. It's called One Thing Real Quick and the basic idea that Evan McDonald, its host, has is to ask one single question of all his guests and have a conversation around that. He's not looking for the big names, the keynote speakers you probably already heard from on other shows. He's looking for people like you and me, people who represent the many small corners of our creative world. I respect and admire Evan's commitment to inclusion, his belief that every designer, writer, filmmaker, musician, or whatever has a story worth telling. I suspect that it's this kind of story, the one told from the ground, from where the work is done, that is a million times more valuable than the one told supposedly from the summit of success. There's always been something suspicious to me about the success economy, the peddling of success stories that frankly seem too good to be true and too vague to be repeated in the lab of real life. And that leads me to the second thing I want to share with you. It's an article by a friend of mine, Eric Cargillato. And if you don't know Eric, you might recognize his name from his old Ideas on Ideas blog or his firm Smash Lab or his website Office Hours, where people like you and me can share time with one another. Well, Eric wrote an article called How to Keep Yourself Sane in a Faketopia. It's a damning critique of our culture of faking it. And I just want to share a little bit of it with you right now. Eric writes this. In Faketopia, you do not perform a function. You hold a title. You're global marketing manager, digital transformation strategist, executive creative director. This title need reflect little. Around these parts, we play a strange game of, I'm kind of a big deal around here. What you've done or can do is largely irrelevant. What is, is your ability to suspend disbelief. This is because in Faketopia, you fake it till you make it. If you aspire to work in startups, you don't start a company. You become a startup advisor and dispense advice. If you want to be a marketer, you start a blog on growth hacking and hope no one asks for examples of your past successes. You want to be famous? Aha, now we're talking. This is Faketopia's key export. People who want to be famous. I'm not opposed to pretending in itself. We have to start somewhere and need to bolster our confidence. When everyone pretends, though, we find ourselves in an impossible context. It makes doing a job well seem like not enough. It treats important work as trivial because it isn't paradigm shifting. 
It leaves all of us chasing what everyone else appears to have, even though they don't. Man. But here's where Eric's words lock right in with my worldview. You and me, he writes, we aren't superheroes. We don't need to be. We're cosmically irrelevant, but locally necessary. The universe doesn't care about you, but your kids, friends, and neighbors do. Get your priorities straight. End quote. If there's been one subtextual truth to every episode I've made so far of Design Tomorrow, it's been an emphasis on the good over the great. The good is scalable. It can exist on every level of your awareness in our society. It can be small. It can be big. It can be seen. It can be unseen. And I'll tell you, it's mostly unseen. But the great That's rarely about a lasting, intrinsic sense of worth and almost always about the aggregate applause of the crowd. Until, of course, that applause dies out and the crowd moves on to the next great thing. But in between those highly visible stages on which the great takes its bow are a million unseen goods. I don't know about you, but I'd rather be a good in the world and disappear than a great at the cost of who I am and what those whom I love need from me. So in that spirit, you can email me any feedback you have at chris at designtomorrow.co or you can tweet me at designtomorrow. That's at D-S-G-N-T-M-R-R-W. I'd love to hear from you, person to person, reality to reality. Thanks for listening and remember, what we do and think today can create a better tomorrow. I'll see you then.